You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The Westminster Confession of Faith is over 300 years old, and yet it remains an excellent summary of the teaching of the Scriptures. Uh, And in the Westminster Confession, the opening section is about what is the Bible. Uh, And it basically says the Bible, Old and New Testament, is the inspired Word of God, It's kept pure by the providence of God in terms of how it's come down to us. And because of those things, in all controversies of religion, the church should appeal to the teachings of God's word. Uh, Just kind of think about that. Let that rest for a moment. In all controversies of religion, the church should appeal to the authority of what scripture teaches. Uh, With saying that, I want to think about how relevant that statement is, given the fact that we know there's been some controversies, even among Christians, in light of COVID-19. And those controversies revolve around what is the relationship between Christians and the government, civil leaders, local leaders, and such like that. If you've been tracking in the news, you know that in California, Governor Newsom uh, issued an order prohibiting churches from singing corporately together, or nearly all religious services, prohibiting corporate singing. Uh, That created quite a firestorm on the internet. Uh, There are three evangelical churches in California that immediately filed a lawsuit against the governor for that. Uh, John MacArthur, who has been the longtime pastor of Grace Community Church, uh, issued a very well-written statement on behalf of the church explaining that they could not abide by this new order uh, and basically said that it is Christ who is head of the church, not Caesar. In other words, uh, you're you're crossing a boundary here uh, that should not be crossed. Uh, And we know that there are Christians that are refusing to wear face coverings and others who are abiding by that. So it brings us back to what the Westminster Confession of Faith said. In all matters of controversy of religion, what does the Word of God say? And so appropriately, we come to this passage in Titus where that's exactly one of the issues Titus is going to deal with. 
What is the relationship between Christians and civil leaders and magistrates? Uh, so open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 3, if you're not already there with me. And we're going to answer this question by considering two concepts. The first is that you are living in two kingdoms as a Christian. You are living in the kingdom of the world, and you are living in the kingdom of God. And we'll look at what does that mean then for each of us as Christians that would have bearing on things that come up where they relate to our relationships with others and even our relationship with state and local authorities. So Titus chapter 3, and we'll begin with looking at the fact that you and I are living in the kingdom of the world. In other words, we're living in a present earthly kingdom. Uh, this is our home. This is where we live. We don't just have a physical address which tells us where we live, but we function. We're out in the world with other people, with literal places to go and tasks to do. And you see that Titus is aware of this because as Paul writes to him, notice verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, and then we'll get to his other series of commandments there. But consider for a moment that Paul is saying, Titus, I know where you have to minister. And I know your believers, they are living in the kingdom of this world. It's, it's an earthly kingdom. It's a visible kingdom. But it is a real kingdom where you live and function. And maybe keep in mind the overview of the book of Titus in that in chapter 1, he talked about relationships within the church. In chapter 2, he talks about relationships within the household. Now he broadens that and says, what about relationships within the kingdom of this world? Where presently this is where God has put you for such a time as this. Well, saying that maybe helps us bridge the distance between this original letter and where we are now. But I'd like to even help do that a little bit more and think about two primary similarities between Crete and the postmodern kingdom of this world that we find ourselves living in. The first is that for both worlds, we prize freedom and autonomy. That's a big thing now, freedom and autonomy. Uh, and think for a moment in Crete, we already know in this letter, on three different occasions, Paul says to Titus, teach them to be subject. What does that tell you about maybe the atmosphere in Crete? Long before New Hampshire's slogan, live free or die, I think the Cretans would be saying, that's us. No, no one is going to tell us what to do. We will determine whatever we want to do, and if we agree with what you say, we'll do it. But if we don't, it's all about personal freedom. Does that sound at all like the world that we live in? Where in a postmodern world, authority is immediately questioned. If someone tells you, you, you need to do this, why? We question it. And we value, and sadly, we have idolized personal freedom and autonomy. No one's going to tell me to wear a mask. I'll wear one if I want to. No one's going to tell me I have to. 
it's interesting to think, wow, this brings these two kingdom worlds, the Cretan world and the 21st century, and says, we need to hear this message too. But the second parallel is we live in a day and an age just like the Cretans, where there's polarizing views about how to relate to magistrates and rulers. So, for example, in the first century, you had extremes. You had those who were zealots, who would be kind of maybe our equivalent to terrorists today, who would say, we need to do anything to take Roman authority out. There's no limit to the violence we could be able to commit if that will remove that authority. Then on the other side of that, in the first century, you had emperor worship, viewing Nero as being not just sent from one of the gods, but being the embodiment of God among us, that, that you should not question anything that an emperor says. Polarizing views quickly speed ahead to today. We have the same challenge before us. Should we always obey leaders no matter what they say? Is that what Scripture teaches? Blind obedience? Does Scripture teach we should respect and honor them, but not necessarily always obey every single thing that a leader says to us? Remember, we've already seen in Titus him warning them about false teachers. You know, no matter what they say, no matter what credentials they might have, don't blindly follow. And so we too find ourselves living in a world where there's a polarizing sense of, of how do you respond to leaders and magistrates and those over you. In other words, the question that John MacArthur raised in his response on behalf of his church to this recent order was where is the line drawn? where government exceeds the authority that has been given by God? And then if so, what should be an appropriate response? So with that in mind, consider Paul is writing this letter to Titus to take to the believers in Crete. Now you know what the kingdom world is that they were living in, which is just like the kingdom world that we are living in. And you might be hoping that Paul's quickly now going to give an answer. He's going to say, well, you need to listen to them, or you don't need to listen to them. But what you find instead is in verses 1 and 2, seven commands that Paul gives them. Not, not like a quick answer, like, well, here it is, black and white. Uh, he gives them a series of commands. And so listen to each of these, and notice what we read in the very beginning of verse 1, remind the people. They've heard this before. They, they know this. I do not expect this morning that you will hear something and you'll be like, wow, I never, ever heard that before. But it tells us we need to keep these things before us because we tend to get fixated on certain circumstances or we think this one situation doesn't apply to this biblical principle. And so Paul is saying to Titus, I know they've heard this before. I know you have heard this before, but continue to keep it before your people. And so let's briefly look at each of these seven commands. Notice the first one, be subject to rulers and authorities. Third time that he says in this letter to the audience, you need, you need to be subject 
In other words, you need to willingly place yourself under the authority that God has put there. And that would match perfectly with Romans 13, other passages in the Bible, where, where if God has placed authority over us, whether it be in the home, the church, and the world, and, and we are just defiant toward that, then we're not just defiant toward that authority. We're, we're actually being defiant toward God. So be subject to the rulers and authorities over you. Imagine a Christian living in Crete under the Roman authority, waiting for Paul to maybe say, you got a right to go against these Roman emperors. You, you have a case on your side. He says, you know what? First focus on this. Be subject to the authorities and rulers over you. Notice the second command that he gives there. Be obedient. What does that tell you that Paul would first say be subject and then says be obedient? I think where Paul's going here is I want to make sure your attitude is what it should be. So if Heather asks me to take out the trash, I can take out the trash. Or I can take out the trash. Paul's saying as a Christian, we need to be looking at your attitude in this. And throughout this letter, Paul's making a deliberate connection all the time between one's actions and one's character. One's actions and one's theology. And so be subject to these leaders. Be obedient in obedience to Christ. But then his third command that he issues there is be ready to do whatever is good. Be ready. Be, be prepared. We talk about the word proactive. Be proactive. That's admired in the workplace. You know, you take initiative. Well, we should be like that as Christians, not just wait till the situation drops in our lap and we're confused and react impulsively. But are we preparing ourselves as best we can for challenges that come? To know the whole counsel of God. To be able to say then, well, here's the situation. Here's how the scriptures help us in this matter. So be subject to them. Be obedient. Be ready to do whatever is good. Notice the next one, slander no one. Now that fits in there because what is the first thing we will tend to do when we don't like something that someone has said or told us we must do? We complain. We, we, we criticize them. We, we attack them. And we have to realize that the culture in the first century would have fueled this. Just like today, doesn't our culture fuel criticism? Criticism of government, criticism of law enforcement, criticism of any person who's in some position of authority. I heard Joel Beakey talking this week about uh, pastors, and, and he was quoting these different Dutch phrases, the little sayings, but one that struck me was he says, anyone, there's a Dutch saying, anyone who is leading someone is going to end up getting kicked in the butt. And he's kind of saying, you know what, if you're in a position of leading, you can expect criticism. You can expect 
slander. But Paul's saying, you know what, as a Christian, let's focus first on what is your responsibility in these things. Don't, don't slander. Don't get caught up in attacking the, the reputation and character of someone. There's a proper place for voicing disagreement about a policy or something, but we don't have to go for the jugular of the person. We don't have to attack them. We should not attack them personally. Notice the next commandment goes back to a positive one. Be peaceable. The opposite of being divisive and quarrelsome. The easiest thing in the midst of all of this going on with local towns, other things, looking for, you know, promoting ordinances regarding face coverings, other things. The easiest thing we often do is become divisive about this. Even as Christians, we can become divisive. I can tell you about churches where there's division because of the face coverings. Just in worship. We're, we're having a hard time with that. That's a testimony that we're not doing that. And that's great. But I think we shouldn't be naive and think this is just something that other people wrestle with. Christians are not following these directions in some places. And then notice he says, be considerate. Some translations have be reasonable, uh, be gracious in your response to your leaders on all of the different levels that he's mentioned. Be gracious. And I think in some ways we realize, whether it be our president, whether it be senators, local towns, in one sense, they are doing the best that they can with this. No one foresaw this coming in terms of its complete impact. No one has a manual to look at and say, well, this is what we did two years ago when this happened. Now, as Christians, we're trusting in God. We're confident that God does have a purpose in this, whether it be to both refine his church and also convict people that they've been putting their faith and trust in all the wrong things. But our responsibility, as Paul says here, is be, be considerate. I don't know about you, but if I was living in Crete, and since we've said the worlds are the same, this may not be what I really wanted to hear Paul say to Titus. I might want him to hear say something like, you're right. You can be angry about this and you should fight back. But instead, he puts these commands up front. And then he gets to the last one. Show humility. Now, Paul, in his letter to Corinth, will say to them that he is seeking to model Christ, who is gentle and meek when he was among you. And this word gentleness means actually to be able to reprove or correct someone without arrogance. Isn't that what we see often missing? Even in Christian responses, which might have a legitimacy to them, you know, where, where this is an issue, where we can say, we, we don't agree with this. You're, you're exceeding the boundaries set by God. But it's how we say that that is critical here. Do we say that and, and be able to say it without a pride or an arrogance that comes through that reflects, we're not going to subject to this. You have no right to tell us what to do.
Or do we say, you know what, we disagree with this. We know we have certain responsibilities and we've sought to follow those. But we also realize that this exceeds that level in which we should obey it. So Paul begins by issuing these seven commands. They're very straightforward. They're not complex. But I want you to think for a moment, why do we have such a hard time following these commands? And I think John Calvin put it best because when you think of it, they all flow out of that first one. Be subject. If you're not subject to the rulers and authorities over you, is it true that you're also probably not subject to God? That you're resisting him in certain ways? And what John Calvin put in describing this was says that the reason these are so difficult is simply none of us want to be subject to anyone. And I think he hit it right on the head. Why is face masking an issue for some Christians? It's not just because it's uncomfortable. It's not, you know, what we like. Our glasses fog up when we have the mask on. You want to be honest and get to the root of it? None of us like to be told this is what you have to do. Whether your wife says it, your husband says it, your employer says it, we just react that way. And so this reminds us that in order to do this, we must realize we also live in a second kingdom. You and I are living as Christians in the kingdom of God. And that changes everything in terms of our response. Because we are also citizens in a spiritual kingdom. In a kingdom that is both present but yet not complete. And has a future aspect to it. But it's because we live in that second kingdom that Paul goes on here in verses 3 and following to show Titus that because we are living in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world is not our home. That we begin more and more as we grow in Christ to realize that and to feel that and to just know as much as we are to love the people in this world and the world that God has blessed us to live in, we constantly should be realizing that this is not my home. And so you notice this in verses 3 through 8 where the attention shifts now to what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God. And so you notice verse 3, it says, At one time we too were. Paul goes pre-conversion here. And says, let me remind you of the world that you live in. That was once your home. And I love how he puts the personal pronoun we. He's saying, this is not just you that need to realize you were like this. But I was too. I thought this world was my home. And as we mentioned, is it possible? And we should be praying that God would use COVID and all of these changes that may stay with us for months, maybe years, would, would break people of this thought that this world will give them everything they desire. Because you notice the list that Paul says in verse 3, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, 
and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. What a list to give. To say, this is how we all thought. Uh, we, we really had no understanding. The kingdom of this world was everything to us. And we didn't think there was anything really beyond that, even though we know deep down there must be more. But then he goes on in verses 4 through 8 to explain a dramatic change that happened. We used to live that way. It wasn't just a customary fleeting thought. That's how we lived. We lived just in the kingdom of this world, just in the physical, the temporal is what we valued. But then notice verses 4 and following. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And we poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And, and Paul basically does a broad sweep, past, present, and future of salvation. He, he has saved you. And, and Paul wants to re-emphasize in this letter, as much as he said, you need to be devoted to good works in this world as a Christian, that it's not works that save you. And I think he very deliberately wants to re-emphasize you're saved by grace, not works. So you don't pull one verse out of here and saying, well, Paul's saying it's all about works. That's not what Paul said. He did say works are evidence that you have been saved by grace. Notice he says you have been justified. You have been declared righteous in Christ. You, you can say as a Christian, I have dual citizenship. I may be a citizen of the United States, but I'm a citizen of heaven. What a reminder that because we live in the kingdom of God, this present world is not our home. And if you find that you are completely satisfied in this world and what this world has to offer, then you better re-examine your own relationship with the Lord because you shouldn't be satisfied with what you see around you. You should be focused on, as Paul will say here in verse 7, that we have become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There is that perspective of being in the kingdom of God. It is both present, but it is a future reality that we await with certainty because we're already heirs. It is guaranteed that we will inherit and reign with Christ. But notice the practicality, knowing that that is the kingdom of God that we presently live in, that we anticipate and look forward to. In verse 8, he comes back and says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Notice how he comes back and says, because you know you are in the kingdom of God, don't then just be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good, but realize you are to serve God here and now in the kingdom of the world. 
that you are to be devoted to doing what is good. And so we come back to this thought, well, what does he mean repeatedly by what is good? And I think we could summarize and say good means authentic Christian living. That we display the fruit of the Spirit, that we display a life that constantly is being conformed by God's Word into the image of Christ. That is how we are to live in this present kingdom of the world because we are citizens in the kingdom of God. And notice how Paul, and as we'll see, Peter, meshes these two worlds to say, it is the kingdom of God that gives meaning and significance to the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of God is the greater, superior, eternal kingdom but it affects how you should be living right now. Rather than seeing it as sort of an escapist route where we just focus on that and, and just want to be out of here and done with this present life. So as we think about this, that would mean then if we understand we are citizens of two kingdom, kingdoms and knowing we are in the kingdom of God, there should be two strong desires in our life. The first would be a desire to do good and honor God through our relationships with those around us. A desire to do good and honor God through the relationships around us. So in other words, should we, by the best means possible, honor and respect the authorities that God has placed over us? Absolutely. And, and we're kind of evidence of that. Um, you know, we're wearing face coverings. We're, we're social distancing. We're, we're following what our, our local laws have suggested would be beneficial, what our president has said. Uh, we're looking at this in terms of evidence that supports these safe measures are a means of helping reduce this, but yet we're ultimately putting our faith in God. But as we're reminded in this present controversy, regarding the public singing and worship, that is there a time when we might have to say, you know what, my desire to honor God through those he's placed over me does not exceed my responsibility to obey God. And I think that's what we need to realize is in dealing with matters like this, we mustn't lump them all together and it's all this or all that but that we need to look carefully as these controversies in religion come up, that we look to the word of God and appeal to that. Because that would follow the second desire we should have. And that is a desire to, when necessary, obey God rather than man. That when those times come, that we are grounded in scripture and can say, Here's a line that exceeds the authority that God has placed in these people. We can still respect them and honor them, but we can, in the deepest conviction, say we're, we're not going to abide by this. And that's reflecting we understand we're in the kingdom of God. We have a responsibility here on earth, but at the same time we're saying if you're going to draw a line 
And you're going to say that obedience to you will bring us to disobedience to God. We will not and cannot in good conscience or faith cross that line. And that is what we'll see Peter says. If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2. First verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. You know enough about Peter to know that eventually he would be martyred for his faith. Uh, even Christ uh, informed Peter that when he reaches a certain age, he, he's going to be taken against his will, uh, and people will take him, kind of giving a prophecy uh, of Peter's eventual martyrdom. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you, remember urge is in a passionate appeal that demands a response. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that they, they will accuse you of doing wrong. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There Peter speaks of this present kingdom. How are you to live in this present kingdom? What's your testimony before pagans and unbelievers? Well, you should desire to demonstrate your obedience to God by honoring those he's placed over you. That's exactly what Peter says. He reminds them, this present world, the kingdom of the world, is, is not really your home as a Christian. See yourself as an alien, a stranger, one who's on a journey to somewhere else that is home. But notice what he says in verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. <clears throat> so there at the end of verse 14, you have two clear God-given responsibilities for magistrates, government, punish wrongdoing, promote what is good. Then he goes on, For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God and honor the king. And notice the end of verse 16. Live as servants of God. And that is what we need to keep before us, both in this present world and being citizens of the kingdom of God. That there may be times, and there may be few, where we'll have to say we, we cannot adhere to this order. Because it leads us in being disobedient to God. It points us in the direction where we are not living as servants of God. And you notice in verse 17 when Peter summarizes this. Love one another in Christ. Love the brotherhood. Only time in the New Testament that particular word is used here. But notice who he says to fear. Not fear the king, but fear God. Again, bringing us back to you're in two kingdoms. Remember which kingdom demands your ultimate 
assurance, and obedience. C.S. Lewis says that if you were to read history correctly, you'd find that the Christians who did the most in this world were those who thought the most of the next. Well, what a reminder to us. That's the kind of people we should be. We think the most of the next world. And because of that, we live lives devoted to doing good in this life as servants of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that your word speaks to contemporary issues. The problem is not that it doesn't speak to those issues. But because of our sinful nature, we often resist what you're saying. And so by your grace, may you, through your Holy Spirit, enable us to apply what we have heard. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.